Welcome to Hollywood Obsessed with Tony Miros, a podcast that celebrates our endless fascination with the iconic people, locations, and history of the entertainment capital of the world. If you're as obsessed with Hollywood as Tony is, or would like to be, get ready to enjoy another exciting, brand new episode of Hollywood Obsessed. Now, here's your host, Tony Miros. Hello, friends. This is your host, Tony Miro speaking to you from the heart of Tinseltown. On this episode of Hollywood Obsessed, I'm beyond excited to be speaking with Garrett Wong, who's best known for the role of Ensign Harry Kim on Star Trek Voyager. Born in Riverside, California, Garrett attended UCLA, where he majored in East Asian Studies and minored in theater. When he decided to become a full-time actor, he made a deal with his parents that he would quit after two years on the condition that they help finance his expenses. After getting some commercials, he finally booked a guest star role on an episode of Margaret Cho's sitcom, All-American Girl. A year and a half after his wager with his parents, he landed his most recognizable role, Ensign Harry Kim in Star Trek Voyager, which ran from 1995 to 2001. Throughout the run of the series, he was named as one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People, as well as one of E-Channel's 20 Coolest Bachelors. Following Voyager, he started in the TV miniseries Into the West, which was executive produced by Steven Spielberg. He also appeared in a number of other films, including Survival Island with Jamie Presley, Acts of Violence with Ron Perlman, and Alongside Night with Kevin Sorbo. He even did an episode of the animated series American Dad. But since 2005, he's taken an extended break from acting, with the exception of the occasional cameo appearance in random indie projects such as the comedy Unbelievable, alongside Snoop Dogg. He spends most of his time being a celebrity moderator, interviewing other celebrities at various sci-fi and Star Trek conventions around the world. He also co-hosts the Delta Flyers podcast with his Star Trek Voyager co-star, Robert Duncan McNeil, who portrayed Tom Paris on the hit TV series. Needless to say, since I'm a huge Star Trek fan myself, I'm thrilled that he's here with me today. So let's get to it and welcome him to the podcast. Hi, Garrett. Thank you so much for being my guest on Hollywood Obsessed. Thank you for having me. I mean, looking at you, I just remember now all of the scenes with Harry Kim. <laughs> it's like one giant flashback. Yeah. Um, I absolutely loved Voyager. I, I thought it was one. Of, it was really one of my favorite uh, shows from the franchise. Um, it, it from I guess it was just because it was back to the standard stuff where they were lost and mm-hmm. they were discovering new places to go. There was, mm-hmm. you know, everything was new. And I think that's what I loved about it. And also, you guys had a great chemistry on that show. Yeah, um, we did. But yeah. I heard in my research, well, not heard, but I read in my research, that you were a huge sci-fi fan growing up, but not Star Trek. No, that, that's not correct. I watched, I watched all of it. <clears throat> you did? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, like I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of 1966 Star Trek because visual effects on that compared to 1977 Star Wars, huge difference. So, you know, that was my first entree into sci-fi was Star Wars. But I did still watch the reruns of TOS when they were on after school. Um, But every every, uh, Trek movie that's come out from the beginning until now, I've been to the movie theaters to see. Like I've seen all of them, including the very first, you know, the the first Star Trek the film so the first one yeah um, yeah so I say I'm an overall sci-fi fan so I'm a fan of all science fiction and I often say to people that only ten percent of all Star Trek actors are sci-fi fans to begin with there right. might be some that become sci-fi fans 
after they were on, um, you know, whatever show that they did. But for the for for the most part, it's it's about ten percent <laughs> that falls into that category. Well, yeah. I'm glad that you fall into the ten percent because yeah. I love star. I love sci-fi. I love Star Wars. I loved Battlestar Galactica, mm-hmm. um, and I even love the new Star Trek stuff. Like I'm I'm yeah. so looking forward to Star Trek: um, Strange New World season two. Oh yeah, great show. It's a great show. And really again, is. they're back to the basics. You know, they're discovering new worlds, and I think that's that's the key to those shows. Mm-hmm. Um, what about I wanted to talk about the original Star Trek, George Takei. I'm sure they bring up George Takei all the time when they speak mm. to you. When you were growing up, did he make any impression on you or did you not really know about uh, that in your in that point of in your point of time when you were young? Oh, I definitely knew because I think as a kid, when you're watching television, you want to see representation that reflects, you know, who you are, right? So you always want to see someone on TV that resembles you. And George was the only person as when I was a kid that resembled me and spoke like me. The other Asian characters that you saw would be like Hop Singh on Bonanza. And what's his <laughs> job? He was, yeah. Oh, Mr. Codright, I'm going to cook your food and wash your dirty underwear. Oh, yeah. Please give me your dirty, stinky underwear. I wash all of it for you. And it's like, no, dude. No, this is not somebody I'm going to look up to. Right. I don't aspire as a kid to grow up to wash other people's underwear. You know what I'm saying? But that's but, you know, the 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 beginnings of the Chinese laundry person happened because the Chinese were excluded by the, all the politicians on the West Coast in California, they're like, no, no, you can't own property. You can't own a business. You can't do any of this stuff. So they picked the job that no one else would do, which mm-hmm. was washing dirty clothes. Mm-hmm. And back then in the old Wild West, there weren't that many women out here. So people weren't married with their wives to help wash their clothes before they go to work. They had to take their clothes somewhere to get mm-hmm. them washed. Because up until that point, when the Chinese basically filled that that void, if you were work, if you were a working man in California, when you wanted your clothes cleaned, you had to have them shipped back to Boston or back east, and then they would be cleaned and shipped back. That's how there was no one to wash them. So that's no how idea. the Chinese, yeah. So wow. that's how the Chinese made their way. Like they've always been, uh, there's always been um, very racist um, legislation by you know local, meaning state and municipal, local authorities, city authorities, state authorities. And even federal have been very, very negative and very much, um, you know, biased against Asians, specifically Chinese. Because mm-hmm. when they came over to build the railroad after they were done, they were like, hey, thanks for your help. Now you're on your own. And right. plus, we don't let you do anything on top of that. It's like we're right. not going to we're not going to bring your wives and, your, and, and whoever from your old country over because we don't want you having kids here. You know, so there was all this horrible legislation against the Chinese in California from a very, very early uh, time in the 19th century. So all the 1800s legislation were anti-Chinese legislation. So that's why you have a character like uh, Hop Singh on Bonanza to, to sort of, <laughs> to really, to show what it was like back then. You know, mm-hmm. you either you, you either cooked food for some people or you had to wash the clothes. That's it. Yeah. And I was, digress. No, that's I love this yeah. information because yeah. I interviewed but, um, I interviewed Anna Wong, who's Anna Mae Wong's niece. Nice. She was, she was talking about how when her aunt be, wanted to get into the entertainment industry, how difficult. Oh, yeah. How impossible it was. Oh, 
Oh my gosh. Because at the time that her aunt was doing it or starting it, they were casting Caucasians with taped back eyes to look yep. Asian. That's what yep. it was. They it were was, doing was, yellow face. They were yes. totally doing yellow but, face. But again, back then, those studio executives, those directors, those producers, they were thinking, we can't find an Asian person to act in this role. That's going to, that's going to carry this film. You know, if we're doing Charlie Chan, we got to, uh, Charlie Chan's the main guy. He's the, he's the detective. Yeah. We can't trust some random Asian guy to play that. We better, we better cast it white, you know, <laughs> so we can trust that uh, this actor who we've worked with many times before, we'd love him. We'll just tape his eyes back. It'll be fine. You know, and that's just, oh my gosh, that is, that is Asian's, um, uh, represent that's that's the version of black like if you talk about african americans detesting blackface where caucasians put on black makeup to look african african american asians also detest having caucasian people play them on television and film with tape back eyes it's just yeah. it's absolutely uh um it's the rudest thing you can possibly do you know i i, like, I agree i mean yeah. i'm puerto rican so i you know the way they portray hey, puerto ricans oh yeah screen. same thing same thing. Same okay. Thing. Even yes, it's just it's ridiculous. There's never it's never, you know, for the longest time, it was always the perspective of the majority, right? They're like, oh, this is the majority's view of what Latino should be. This is the right. majority view of what an Asian person should look like, you know. And it's like, hey, dude, that's not even right. It's not even close. You have no <laughs> clue, right? If your director and your writer happens to be Puerto Rican, then great. That's the proper representation, right? Mm-hmm. And it t- it took all the way to you know, the 21st century for someone named Lin-Manuel Miranda to come out and start doing some <laughs> stuff to show that, hey, you could be Puerto Rican and creative and what also a- make some money at it, too. So who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, so, yeah. You're- so seeing so to go back to it, seeing George Takei without without speaking with him, not having any accent, seeing that as a kid. It, it made a huge impact on me because I kept thinking, wow, this is the only character on TV that doesn't speak like Hop Singh. I'm so right. excited. And there was a commercial. There was a Calgon commercial. Do you remember this? Like they would, yes. they'd come. Yeah, the person come in. It's Mr. Lee. How do you get your clothes so clean? <laughs> and he goes, "Well, Susie, ancient Chinese secret." Yeah, and then, ancient Chinese. And then secret. the wife in the back goes, "We need more Calgon." And then <laughs> the 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 Caucasian customer in the front goes, "Ancient Chinese secret, huh?" So. <laughs> At least those two spoke without an accent, right? So the husband and wife, were, that's the first commercial I know of with an Asian without an accent in it. So, and that was huge back in the, whenever the seventies or early eighties that that commercial yeah. actually aired. That's massive. That's groundbreaking really, but it's sad at the same time, because that's always been the ignored minority, which is the Asian who was born here, who speaks perfect English, who mm-hmm. identifies as American and not as a Chinese national, right? That, right? That's like when I when I think of myself, I think I'm American, one thousand percent. It's funny because when I go back to China or Taiwan or or Hong Kong, anywhere when I go to Asia, they look at me as the loud American. You see what I'm saying? The, the loud, obnoxious American. Like my cousins are like, "Man, you're loud, dude." And I'm, and I'm like, "Okay," because when you become, you know, when you're raised in this country, you definitely take on a certain persona, right? You definitely have this sort of like, uh, you know, 
uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm part of the new world, right? You know, this is, you know, mm -hmm. we've, we've gone away from Europe. We've started our own thing. We're American. We're, we're mavericks. We start out on our own, you know, blah, blah, blah. We, we, we threw the yoke of the English rule off of us. Woohoo! You know, so I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I was raised just like every other Caucasian red-blooded American uh, person. I, you know, had the same upbringing, basically. Yeah. And they only see that in two representations on television, which is George Takei and the Calgon couple. It sucks. You know what I'm saying? It should be more than that. But because they were there, that helped me. If there was no George Takei as Sulu, if there was no Calgon couple, I would have been, I think my headspace would have been even more upside down. You know, I mean, I would, I would have been thinking, wow, sure. um, this country doesn't value me at all. You know what right. I'm saying? I mean, I might as well be, yeah. I might as well be a, not even a third class citizen. I'm like a fifth class citizen in this country <laughs> if there was no Sulu and no Calgon couple. So, well, I read about your parents when you wanted to become an actor. They weren't very happy with that no, decision, were they? Not at all. They thought it was, it was, it was crazy because ever since I was a, an eighth grader in Memphis, Tennessee, I told my parents, I'm going to, I'm going to med school. I'm going to be Doogie Howser. Oh, you told graduate. them you were going to be in med school. I told them I was going to go to med school. I was going to graduate early from med school. I was going to be Doogie Howser because at the time I was um, two years younger than everybody in my grade. Right. So when I graduated okay. high school in Memphis, Tennessee, I was, um, I was, I was 15 as a senior in high school. Right? Oh, wow. I turned 16. Yeah. In the, in, in the middle of it. And then, um, went to college. So I was a 16 year old college, 16 year old college freshman. So therefore, uh, yeah, in my mind, I was going to get done with med school, done with my um, extra uh, schooling after that for to be a specialist, uh, specifically an anesthesiologist. And then after that, residency. So my whole game plan was I was still going to be in my 20s when I was a full fledged doctor, not a resident, you know, like full on <laughs> making making good money, you know, yeah. no more student loans, that kind of thing. So how did the acting thing happen then? Um, honestly, I I walked into a theater at UCLA. There was a, a TA twenty is the class, so it's theater arts twenty. It's mm -hmm. it's a it's the basic class that all freshman theater majors take. It's beginning acting is what it is. So I walked in in fall quarter to a beginning acting class, and I just came in and I asked the teacher. I said hi is there any way that I can enroll in this class if I'm not a theater major? Mm -hmm. And she said, yes, there is. But because it's fall quarter, the preference goes to all theater majors that are freshman theater majors. So uh, they, this class will probably be full. Winter quarter will probably be full too. But spring quarter, if you come back the third quarter, the final quarter of the year, most of the freshmen have already taken TA-20. There might mm. be a couple stragglers. So you... If you show the interest and you get here on the first day, I would admit you. And I said, oh, okay. So I came back two quarters later and took my first theater class. And I got so into it, I was going to switch my major. But then my friends that I had made in the theater department at UCLA told me, don't do that. Uh, and I said, why? They said, because, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, being a theater major at UCLA also means being free labor to the theater department. So each student had to take set construction 101 so now guess yeah. what happens they're not learning the newest techniques of how to construct a set they are literally being put on <laughs> this main stage to build the set for the main stage that they're charging admission to right it's right. like mm, free labor okay and then <laughs> then if you're not doing set construction then other students have to do set lighting 101 so now they're lighting everything and again it's so they all told me <laughs> 
bypass that. If you can take as many theater classes as you can without having to become a theater major, that's the way to go. Make all your upper division electives be in theater. And I did that. So I went to beginning acting, intermediate acting, uh, acting for film and TV, stage combat for actors, voice for actors, uh, movement for actors, uh, yada, yada, yada. I was on the UCLA soap opera. I got cast on that. Um, so uh, for all intents and purposes, most of the people in the theater department thought I was a theater major because that's where I spent all of my latter years at UCLA. In the beginning, I was pre-med. I was biology. And then I switched to right. poli-sci because I was going to go pre-law. Then I switched again to econ. I was going to go get my MBA. <laughs> so I kept switching. And then I went to history. And then I went to finally... Um, East Asian studies was my final major <laughs> with, uh, you know, with all my upper division electives in theater department. So that's how it happened. OK, yeah. Well, yeah. well, thank God you got into the theater because you made oh quite a God. name for yourself. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason why I didn't do theater in high school is because I was in Memphis. I kept thinking, why? No one's going to cast some Chinese kid to be the lead in Oklahoma, the school play, right? Or well, they could have, but your, it would have been Eddie, a get your odd. gun. Yeah. Eddie, get your gun. Starring Garrett Wong. Uh, no. So I, so I just shied away, even though I knew that I had the, the, you know, the ability to act and something that I would enjoy to doing is acting. I just knew that it wouldn't, wasn't going to come, you know, to fruition in high school in memphis i just did, didn't think well maybe it would maybe it could have but nobody even had the concept of rainbow casting back then right i think even in theater at the theater department for the main stage we did i remember mama which is a norwegian you know family right. play but um everybody was rainbow cast on that like the daughter i think was puerto rican actually was a puerto mm. rican actress yep um and they i was it was between me and one other guy to be the son. So, but then in the last second, they went with the other actor. And then I ended up playing like a bellman or something in the hotel. I ended up playing two smaller roles. But again, every character is supposed to be Scandinavian in this play. And they right. rainbow cast it back, you know, in uh, that would have been early 90s, late 80s when they did that, which is huge. They don't do that, yeah. you know. Um, when you then. finally did graduate, though, and then you went into going to auditions. Was that a lot of no's and a lot of doors being shut? How, did you find it difficult? Uh, there was just less opportunity. Yeah. It was much, much, you know, in terms of auditions. Like I tell people, Star Trek was my 32nd audition. So they, the assumption is, oh, wow, you started acting. And within a couple of months, you, you <laughs> nailed Voyager. Well, yes, in the 90s, the mid 90s, early 90s, if, uh, if you're a 20, 20, 21, 22-year-old Caucasian male trying to make it, oh, yeah, you could have 15 or 20 auditions in a week. No problem. You know, it just because mm -hmm. it's happening. But if you're an Asian male in your early 20s, not the same. So mm -hmm. I was getting, yeah, I was getting an audition once. Like that audition happened a year and a half from when I first started professionally acting. So it yeah. took me a year and a half to get to 30 something auditions. So that's do the math, you know what I'm saying? So that's not, that's maybe, maybe once one, every couple of weeks, one will pop up, you know, so it's not the best, it's not the best odds really, because if you look at it, I always tell people, Luke Perry, Luke Perry from Beverly Hills, 90210 before he booked that job, he had 256 no's. Okay. He had gone on 250 something auditions where they were like, nope, 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 nope. And then he booked 90210. Now let's extrapolate. My 33rd audition took a year and a half. 
how long would it take me to get to 250? Right. Okay. So another eight times that. So eight times a year and a half. Now we're talking about 12 years later. Right. Right. So I could go on a, if I had a dry streak like him, I could go on a 12 year dry streak where I had nothing at all. Right. Right. Before I booked a big gig. And so, yeah. So again, the opportunities were few and far between for Asians in entertainment in the 90s. And when I did book it, I was the only Asian series regular, male or female, on television in like 95, 96, 97. Not until Lucy Liu popped onto that law show that she did, Ally McBeal. There was no one else. There was it no was one. just you. It just was me. really just you. And it's like every decade has one main Asian series regular, it seemed. Like <laughs> 60s, Sulu. 70s, the, the Asian guy, the, the the detective on Barley Barney Miller, the sitcom, okay? Oh, yeah, 80, that's right. 80s. 21 Jump Street, Dustin Wynn, <laughs> 90s, Harry Kim, like that. So it's just, it's sad. It, it really shouldn't be like that, right? No. One role per decade? Yeah. Even Latinos get it better than that. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, come on. The only other, I'm telling you, the only other worse off minority than Asians in terms of casting are Middle Eastern descent. If you're Middle Eastern descent, you're pretty much destined for a life of, you know, a terrorist roles. That's it. It's just, it's horrible. <laughs> right, it's right. horrible. Did you see um, uh, Rami? Did you see that? That's I the did Egyptian. see Rami. Oh, yeah. my God. That was so, so refreshing. Because yeah. I got to say, you get sick of seeing terrorist roles. It's like, Jesus Christ. Like, this is not you. Have basically, Hollywood has encapsulated an entire culture into and multiple nations in the Middle East into one occupation terrorist like every single one is a terrorist that's ridiculous <laughs> so when rami came out i told everybody please watch this this is about an egyptian american family mm-hmm. and it's something you've, you've never seen this angle ever right no. so and he's oh. funny rami is funny funny my god really funny. i mean just ah, oh, i love that show i love that show so when you anyway. when you got the part of harry um yeah. what were your thoughts at first were you like oh wow i I pinch myself. That's what it was. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I had just, I just kept thinking they're going to go with someone with a, with a bigger resume. Right. And it's interesting because I, I think my third or fourth audition, when I was walking into the building at Paramount, where the casting office was, I saw Jonathan K. Kwan walking out. So he had just had the audition. So they, oh. he auditioned for Harry Kim as well. Short round from Indiana Jones, basically. Oh, right. Okay. So, and Data from Goonies, same, same actor. And now from everything, always, everywhere at once, he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. I'm so proud of him. So excited. But the bottom line is, when I saw him, I'm like, oh, geez, they're they're going, you know, they're seeing everybody. They're seeing all every <laughs> every everybody who's ever had any type of influence on Hollywood and was Asian and male got seen for that role. And I just thought, oh, no, they're going to pick someone else that has more uh, ex- a more extensive resume. Mm-hmm. And so I had that sort of disbelief when I got cast, like maybe this is not real. Maybe this <laughs> is maybe I'm in the Matrix right now and I'm not really seeing this, but I, I definitely felt like this was not the real deal for a little while and i just kept pinching myself that whole first season it was just me driving around la pinching myself and smiling and then pinching and then smiling and then pinching and because i was so excited (laughs) that i did it right and this is without any type of nepotism involved because that happens in hollywood right people get cast because their dad is a casting director their dad is a producer whatever Mm -hmm. their mom is a director and boom they're in the project so um so for me to come from a non-theater non-theatrical non-hollywood um background with my parents you know, my dad was, uh, he has his PhD in botany from um, 
Purdue University. So he was a man of science, which then he kind of pivoted and went into to business with uh, a brother of his. Um, and then my mom is, you know, she's always been either at home mom or she at one point owned her own retail store where she was selling like, you know, craft items and things like that. So, um, but nothing in the field of um, in, of, of entertainment of at entertainment. all. Yeah. yeah. So it's an accomplishment because I feel like to get on a TV show as a series regular, it's more difficult to get on an NBA or a NFL or an NHL <laughs> team. Um, it's more difficult to get on as a series regular of, of all the thousands and thousands of actors out there. Only a small percentage are actually series regulars on a TV show that mm-hmm. lasts longer than one year. Right. There's a lot of shows where you're a series regular. Sure. It goes for one season and do- one and done. It's the yeah. one and done thing. Right. That happens almost probably 90% of the time for mm. a show to go to seven years, like Voyager did and TNG. It's rare. Right. It so, is. yeah. It is. So, really, it's the big leagues, you know. So, well, and especially when you huge. walk into a, a thing which is has a huge legacy behind exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, when you got Harry Kim, I'm sure the first thing that flashed into your mind is, oh, my, it's me and George Takei yeah. in this whole franchise. And yeah, that's much. a lot to carry with you. Um, was there a lot of anticipation, you think, from the fans when they knew that there was going to be an, an Asian character on the show? Or did you feel, oh, now they're going to compare me? Well, with- no, I mean, the anticip- I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of anticipation from fans that were Asian American fans, sure. for sure. Um, but I didn't really think about comparison. You know, the, the comparison that I got after people watched the pilot episode, the caretaker, the two-parter, the comparison I got was after it when caretaker kidnaps all of us takes us to the, to the delta quadrant and then starts sort of sampling our dna with that yeah that need, needle that goes into our chest cavity um so i which by the way you're filming, yelling you're you're yeah, screaming my, my, that, yell, that was great that's screaming so the comparison was <laughs> people started going online and at the time they were going on to aol like chat rooms oh, right yeah. so it was like a aol mm-hmm. star trek voyager chat room and people were like just saw the pilot of the new star trek show i love it and the character that played Ensign Harry Kim is just like Chekhov because Chekhov <laughs> screams with the SETI eel that goes into his ear. You know, they were thinking <laughs> it's just like he was in Wrath of Khan. Harry Kim's just like that. So I had comparisons <laughs> not to Sulu, but to Chekhov is what I got. So How funny. Quite funny. Yeah. I remember hearing at the time that Kate Muldrew was not the original captain. It was Correct. Genevieve yeah. Bougeau. Was, yes. Right? And she and she pronounced it Genevieve. Oh, Jean-Vierre, yeah. sorry. Jean-Vierre Bujold, yeah. And she worked, what, two days on the show? Yeah, a day and a half. And she were you there? What was it like with yes, her? Yes, I was the only, uh, Robbie and I were the only two that basically saw her. <laughs> and I think maybe Tim. But uh, it was incredible because we saw the first Janeway, which wasn't Kate Mulgrew, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was interesting because she was very tight-lipped, you know? She did her thing and she left, went to her trailer. So I think at the end of day one, I sort of blocked her path from walking out of the studio. I was, and I just stopped her and I said, I said, Jean-Viev, I said, how are you? How's the experience going? She stopped for a split second. She kind of looked me up and down and was like, hmm, I guess I'll say something to somebody. And so she looks at me and she says, I feel as if I cannot trust anyone. I'm like, what? Oh, wow. What do you mean? He goes, well, when I auditioned for the role of Janeway, and I'm doing her French-Canadian accent, right? So <laughs> I, when I audition for the role of Janeway, they tell me, I tell them that I want her to be captain first and uh, female second. So she wanted her to be all about business, 
be sure. the captain, right? So she said, I don't want them to change my my hair. I don't want them to do extra makeup. And so she wanted to be a no frills, very little makeup, hair down, no stupid bun, you know, a bun of steel, which they gave Kate, you know, in the beginning, which was horrible. I mean, she's so matronly in that bun of steel. It's it really like, was. Are you kidding me? Get that thing out of here. It's just horrible, right? It's just like not even practical. Um, so, you know, if you're going to put your hair up, no nonsense and you're have long hair ponytail one little put you know what i'm saying just done right. or cut or cut it short don't make it long so um she was really upset with that and she felt like they had told her that yes we see your vision for janeway and we agree with you but when she came into hair and makeup they did they changed everything they were like no we're gonna fuss with your hair this way we gotta do this on your makeup and she felt like she was um she was told something, and then when it came down to the actual ha- day of filming, she was told something different, and so that made her not happy. And I think she had three very or two young kids at home, and I think she kind of like she did the weight of like, okay, so I'm going to be on set how many days for how many hours? Am I right. even going to see these children? Be you know, will you? Because if you think about it, she would leave for work before the three-year-old wakes up probably or right when the three-year-old wakes up and then the husband or whoever the nanny has to take care of that kid and then she's gone the entire day by the time that kid gets back from kindergarten or whatever it is daycare and then is put to sleep she gets home after the child is asleep so really yeah. she would never see the kid so i think that also weighed into it she's thinking like i may have bit off more than i can chew in terms of my my time you know what right. who i give my time to and when you are a series regular and a captain at that on a Star Trek show, you give your time to the show. You don't give your time to your family. Your family is definitely a second banana to the show because you're always there pretty much. So that was it. Yeah. So really seeing that, seeing her, and I I will, I think Jean Via was, was good in that she made that decision quickly. Like if she filmed the entire pilot and then, they aired that and then she filmed one episode then quit right then it would be like you know in my lifetime i've there's maybe one one show that i know of that i was watching and they changed the lead like midstream and i was like what (laughs) i I said that is not that character what are you i was so angry i was so you know uh, beside myself so again that's that's something that you just don't recover from you know as a fan when you're watching television when they change the person and it's and and that person is the main one of the main characters not an ancillary like side guy or a co-star recurring character that comes in every now and then i could see that happening a change there but when it's the series regular and and the captain no it's just too weird so yeah, so I'm glad she did that, that she said I'm out when she did. Was it totally different when Kate joined? Well, yeah, because the way that Jean Vieve played Janeway was a more subdued Janeway, a quieter Janeway. And in the old, my, you know, my younger years, I described it as French art house film Janeway, you know? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, because we, we filmed the first scene with her, which was we leave DS9 and she comes up. Uh, it's not crunch time yet, Mr. Kim. And she comes down and thrusters Mr. Paris, engage. So we leave. Okay. Right. So when Jean Vieppe did it, she was like, um, thrusters Mr. Paris. And she sat down in her captain's chair and she did this. You have to watch me here. She did this. She closed her eyes and she went, engage. <laughs> engage. 
<laughs> and I, that is definitely one way of playing it. I'm not going to judge her one way or the other, but it was sure. French art house film Janeway is what she gave us. <laughs> and everyone on set was like scratching their head going, oh boy, oh boy, this is not... <laughs> This is this doesn't this doesn't resemble Picard. This doesn't resemble Kirk. This doesn't resemble Cisco. This doesn't remember. This resembles nobody. Like who is this captain? You know. So there was some major concern. And then of course when Kate came in, she's like, she goes, "It's not crunch time yet, Mister Kim." She sits down, thrusters, Mister Paris, and she's like, "Engage." She does a little thing and we leave. Right. So everyone breathed a sigh of relief when Mulgrew came in and took it over. So, yeah. <laughs> You did Voyager for seven seasons. Were you guys just like, were you like family? Did you like, you were with each other all the time. We were, we were, we were with each other pretty much for hours on end. So, I mean, the longest day I did was 22 hours. So I got there at 6 a.m. for call. My call time was 6 a.m. And I wrapped at 4 a.m. So 22 Mm. hours of, of filming. That was during the pilot. That was the longest day ever. And then they said at 4 a.m., they said, hey, thank you so much for your work. 22 hours. That's a record. Um, so we'll see you at 10 a.m. So that's six hours later after a 22-hour day. They're like, yeah, have fun. Go home, you know, rewind, you know, unwind, try to sleep, you know, try to sleep, I guess. I don't know. It was like. <laughs> I hope you live close to the studio. My gosh. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> so that was tough, too. Uh yeah, but it's, uh, you know, Hollywood has really changed. It really has like from the time. And you mentioned that in your email. And that's the one thing I want to talk about is that the whole audition process has completely changed. So I left Voyager. I left Hollywood in 2005. So 2001 Voyager Rap, there was a writer's strike in from 01 to 05. I had 20 auditions. Less than I did in the beginning of my career. That's five per year. Okay. Wow. So that definitely went every two to three months. I booked one job into the West and I said, I'm done. I said, I'm going to take a break. So I left Hollywood in 2005, 14 years. So almost a decade and a half I left and just took off. But when I came back, I discovered there's no in-person auditions. At least it's very rare right, at this point, right? So mm-hmm. everything is, you get the sides, you record it, you know, uh, on your iPhone or your Samsung, your, your Android device, uh, landscape mode, right? Turn it over. And then... Um, Upload that and send that into your manager, your agent. And that's your audition right there. So now what does it do? It effectively opens up the competition to the world. Because before you had to live in LA and New York to kind of make it, right? Mm -hmm. So people that were in the Midwest, if you didn't have the means to get out to LA or New York and you wanted to be an actor, well, you're going to be doing community theater in in Evanston, Illinois for the rest of your life. You're not going to (laughs) go anywhere other than that, right? Or or if a film comes into town and films in Chicago, you might get an under five or a little bit role, right? But you're Mm -hmm. not going to get anything meaty or juicy, um, back in the day, but now you can get meaty and juicy and you can live in Timbuktu. You can live in, as long as you have internet, you're golden. But again, the competition is more and even callback auditions are on a zoom call. You're on zoom with the casting director and doing the callback audition. Um, maybe if it's a super high profile role, maybe they might have actors come in for like a third or fourth audition in person, but that's so rare now. And so that's the one thing that has changed as an actor that. I'm not that happy about because I part of my charm is meeting you in person. You feel my energy. You can sense who I am, but you don't sense that on a zoom call and you don't sense that on a, uh, an an audition that has been recorded on my own personal device. 
and sent in because there's no, there's no small talk, right? Part mm-hmm. of it is there's small talk when you walk into an audition in person. You're like, hey, how's it going? Oh, hey. Or if it's a casting director I know, then I could, you know, and I know them, I know their life a little bit. I'd be like, hey, how's how's Jim? How's your husband doing? Or, you know, right. or, or how's how's Carol, your wife? You know, how's, how's that's not there anymore. It's just, and it's so crazy. Back in the day, all the casting directors had casting offices. Now, casting, uh, now casting directors have no offices at all. Everything is just done from their home. They don't even have I to know. go anywhere anymore. So I know. it's incredible. I have a lot of acting friends and they're, they're like, I can't believe I had to do a chemistry read mm-hmm. on a Zoom call. I wasn't even in the same room with these people. Yeah. I'm like, I know that's hard. It yeah. is because you can't work a room. You can't. No. You how can't. do you get chemistry with somebody from a Zoom call? How? How? It's impossible. It's just impossible unless you're psychic and you can feel that person's energy from thousands of miles away. There's no other way. If you're a normal human being who is not in touch with psychic abilities, it's not going to happen for you. So that's it. (laughs) Thanks for listening to part one of my conversation with the awesome Garrett Wong. On the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed, my conversation with Garrett continues as we discuss how his Voyager character, Harry Kim, had as many on-screen romances as Captain Kirk did in the original series what it was like being selected as one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People, and how much fun he's currently having co-hosting the Delta Flyers podcast with his Star Trek Voyager co-star, Robert Duncan McNeil. All that and more on the next episode of Hollywood Obsessed. This is your host, Tony Miros. See you next time. Thanks for joining us this week on Hollywood Obsessed. Make sure to visit our Facebook page, Hollywood Obsessed Podcast where you can subscribe to the show so you'll never miss a single episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in every other Monday for our next episode. That's a wrap.